The following podcast is part of the MindBodySpirit.fm podcast network. Meditation doesn't have to be a solo practice. Meditation is more fun with friends. Looking for a way to drop in and hang out at the same time? Join us online at Omega Institute for a meditation party with self-proclaimed meditation nerds Dan Harris, host of the 10% Happier podcast, Sabene Selassie and Jeff Warren. This three-day retreat will stream live from Omega's Hudson Valley Campus, May 17th to 19th. Don't miss the party. Reserve your spot at eomega.org slash party today. the world your lover. That's what we're here to do, my darlings. That's what we do through my online joy school at lisamacourt.com, through my newest book, Free Your Joy, The 12 Keys to Sustainable Happiness. And it's what we're going to do right here, right now together on the Do Joy podcast, where I bring you fascinating guests with powerful insights for elevating your personal vibration. Deep lasting happiness is a skill you can learn, and I'm so honored to be on this journey with you. Hello, sweet listeners. I hope your new year is off to a beautiful start, or as my guest for this episode would say, I hope the illusion known as 2024 has been a pleasant illusion for you thus far. And I smile as I say that, but really, that's what we talk about here all the time, right? Always when I talk about joy, whether it's here or at joy school, I remind you that joy is who you are. It's what you are in the realest sense, because what you are in your timeless eternal essence is consciousness. And everything else you are is ultimately illusory. It's a costume that you're briefly wearing here in this time and place, and it's a costume you've cobbled together since you arrived that's made up of all the beliefs, all the thought programs, all of that input that was installed in your mind early on by caregivers, by society, programs that have continued to be fed and nurtured and fortified by all of your experiences here ever since. And as we often discuss many, many of those programs that are running in you beneath the level of your conscious awareness are not conducive to you experiencing yourself as the joy and love that you are at your truest essence. I love, love, love the conversation I'm about to share with you because even though all of Joy School and all of my career has been about connecting you with that aspect of you that is real, that is consciousness itself, my brilliant, brilliant friend, Chris Niebauer, is able to outline this existential illusion that most people are operating from so eloquently and with a lot of clarity, which I admire so much. Chris Niebauer, PhD, is the author of No Self, No Problem, How Neuropsychology is Catching Up to Buddhism, and there's an amazing workbook to go with that. If you're a regular listener, you've met him before here on the Do Joy podcast, and if you resonate with what Chris and I are talking about today, go to lisamacourt.com to the events page to find out about a new program we're offering together to help you more easily detach from that world of abstract thought where all anxiety and depression and lack of joy, that's where it is. And to help you to connect more fully with the consciousness that you are, which is where your natural joy is. So here's the conversation with Chris. Chris, I always love talking to you, as you know, and it's been a while since we've gotten into one of our juicy, juicy conversations. And um, I I think that what I love about your new book, which I've been so honored and blessed to be able to peek at and, and read prior to most people, consciousness. Consciousness is referenced throughout. And I feel like everything that I've 
been teaching and, and had learned about what I recognize as my own experience of consciousness, I've been calling a spirituality. And you posted something recently with, you know, uh, when you take away all abstract thinking, what's left is God. And I guess I, I wanted to ask your, your thoughts about the intersection. And, and I know you have a whole chapter on why spirituality is not what you think it is. And I'm assuming that that just means that you, you consider it the experience of consciousness. And I think this opens the door for a lot of people who may be like, you know, my invitation to come experience your soul self, your spirit self sounds a little woo-woo or too connected to some sort of trauma they might have experienced in organized religion. Whereas if we just take it to this realm of consciousness, where where does it all intersect? Yeah. So spirituality, it's, it's it, you can get almost an intellectual version of spirituality and and you can read about it and philosophers have gotten into it and um you know religions have actually formed around different versions of spirituality and what i've done is really take away almost anything you can think about and then ask what's left and that's when you're left with the taste of your coffee in the morning and and, the, and these really simple conscious experiences that to me make up the basis of what we call spirituality. So when you get up in the morning, you can start thinking and you're and you're planning your day and that's fine. But the real spiritual moment is when you catch yourself conscious of a breath or you catch yourself like tasting your coffee in the morning and like, you know, it's just, you have that deep gratitude. Like, you know, for so many of us that coffee in the morning is what centers us it centers us spiritually so we can go out into that abstract world of work and then we get into you know it's so layered with different thinking and bureaucracy but those moments <clears throat> and i actually talk about this in one of the chapters of work because i there's so many different abstractions we have and school is a huge abstraction for us and then we have the abstraction we call work and you can be at work and it's so based on efficiency and productivity and all these are abstractions. And to be spiritual is to be able to be in the middle of all that, sitting in your cubicle and you know, having a taste of your tea and recognizing only that that taste of your tea is real. All everything else is just this illusory mind-created um thinking that we 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 fall for it. We we think that the abstract world is real, and that's where all the trouble, drama, and suffering comes from. The reality of consciousness is so simple, so profoundly simple that I think it can shock people that the the, the 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 real world is the world of well, it's what we're getting at when we do meditation and mindfulness. And so sometimes you know you're washing your hands, and you're very mindful of washing your hands, and all of a sudden you recognize there's no problems, and that's where you feel really like at peace, and it's just like you know, the sensory experience. And so I really got into uh, all, all that is simple, <laughs> the simple conscious experiences of life that seem to be what we're going for when we do mindfulness and we do meditation. But instead of setting time aside, make that your reality. Like wake up, like live that as your reality and visit the thinking world occasionally you know, here and there. Don't spend too much time there. You don't need to. <laughs> that's where our natural joy is. That's where we are all just naturally joy and love at, at our core. And I, I feel like some of us, maybe, I don't know if this has been your experience, but maybe just due to whatever little glitch in the matrix might have happened at various points in our lives, some of us glimpse it and I, I guess I'm speaking to my own experience now because I get excited when I read your work in the same way that I used to get excited when I first started exploring spiritual authors and writers is that there was something that I knew was there at certain moments and I could, but, but I didn't have um, direct access to it. I, I couldn't sort of like call upon it at will. I didn't know how to do that. And I, I just, you know, just kind of thought it was my own little crazy thing that I would catch glimpses of. And then, you know, my early adulthood, when I started reading spiritual texts and exploring spirituality, it was like, oh, someone is making sense of it. Someone else is, is describing what I've been feeling. And I was so pulled and so drawn to it. And you know, people always ask me, like, why do you do what you do? What's the draw? It's like, well, it's that thing. And 
and it's funny that the the spiritual texts gave me words to put to it and gave me abstractions <laughs> that I could apply to that which is not abstract. And then I feel like that's what what you provide from a different angle, which gets me so excited about the dovetail between like the the science behind it and the the left and right brain explanations. But we're still putting a bunch of abstractions onto mm-hmm. that which is <laughs> which is not abstract. Yeah, and you know what. I was watching Rupert Spira recently and, and he just started his lecture out. He's like, everything I'm telling you is a lie. <laughs> and if it's, and, and there's a truth to that because he's using these abstractions, but we've all had the same experience and we, and in that experience of subtracting all the thinking and it's, it really is that feeling of joy. It's like, there is something about consciousness, the nature of consciousness that is love, it's joy. And of course, I can use those words as abstractions, but those who have been to that, they've been there, they immediately know what I'm talking about. And I could use any word I want. <laughs> they, they just, they, they recognize it. And so I think all of us were stuck in this position of using uh, abstract language. And, 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 and some of us have been there and they, and they reconnect. And one of the things I, I work in, in the, the book is just how long we've been thinking and how we're institutionalized as thinkers. And you start off at school and, uh, you know, we've got reading, writing, arithmetic, and these are all useful abstractions. But if you remember back in like first and second grade, maybe you got a little time playing music. <laughs> and it was like, and the irony of all that is, is the reading, writing, and rhythm, it's all valuable stuff. We wouldn't want to take any of that away, but it's just not real. It, it's, this, this, it's this abstraction. The one thing that we uh, put the least value on is the only thing that's real, and that's music. And, <laughs> and so the education system, it, it's just, it, it's a useful abstraction because we, we can, we're not going to get do away with this abstraction, and I would never suggest that. And I wouldn't ever suggest taking that away from kids because they're living in an abstract world and they have to navigate their way around. But it's a reorientation of recognizing what is real. And actually that's what I put in the book as a test. Like, do you want to know what's real? Can you consciously experience it? I mean, it's a simple thing. And so the taste of your coffee is real. Uh, the wind, uh, you know, on your face, the sun on your face, all these basic sensory experiences, those are all real. That's what uh, consciousness is all about. And then you say, well, how do I know when I'm in a thinking world? Because thinking is this shadow-like, of, it's a, it's a imitation and, 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 and it, there's just not something alive as when you're in consciousness. Consciousness has that energy and joy. And so you can contrast that and you could say, well, let me taste my coffee. And there's this alive sensation to it. And then you say, okay, well, let's think about some concept. And let's think about government. (laughs) And then you're just like, it's all of a sudden that the the aliveness is gone. And and when we think about abstractions, it's, it's, there's no more energy to it. It doesn't vibe anymore. And so um, abstracts are useful, but they're lifeless. And then that's, I think, what happened to a lot of us. We went through school for so long, and then we went to work. And then, you know, so much is spent in this abstract thinking mode that we need to reconnect with the energy that is who we are. And that's the thing is, if if, if you're so busy at work, uh, you've cut that lifeline to, to the to conscious experience, which is really who you are. That's the energy of your existence. And, and it's, and you can call it love, you can call it uh, joy. Um, And as soon as you cut that off, uh, you know, people go to work and they're just, why can't I find my joy at work? (laughs) It's like, well, because for a lot of us work is, it's a thinking abstraction. And, and, and we've got paperwork and we've got symbols about other symbols and none of it goes back to these simple conscious experiences where it's all, it all comes together with that. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Okay. So many things I want to pull in there. <laughs> and, and so instead of in a lot of, uh, you know, positive thinking sort of modalities, it's about replacing the negative thought with a positive thought that's still staying in abstraction. We can, we, 
when we're concentrating on the taste of the coffee, for example, that has to start as a thought, right? So you have to think about concentrating on the, the taste of the coffee, but then you just sort of, you notice the difference, you notice the aliveness in the moment and you realize that you're not now thinking it, you're, you're experiencing it. So at work where there's so much levels of abstraction that we have to pay attention to, to, to do our good job at work and meet everybody's expectations. And we're probably relating to those at work as the abstractions and we're putting the abstraction of our little personhood in connection with their abstraction of their little personhood. And, mm -hmm. um, you know, you, you talk about uh, relationships and, and connection. And one of the things we've always done in joy school is to try to, to see through the namaste lens where we're focusing, where we're meeting ourselves as the consciousness that we are making connection with another as the consciousness that they are. Is that like an example of something that, that people could do at work to, to be in in consciousness and out of the abstract, like how, what, what are some ways to, to manage that relationship? Cause we have to function in the abstract world, but we want to spend yeah. as much time as we can in consciousness. And so one of the things about school, one of the things about work is particularly with Western culture, we, we, we build our relationships around this kind of quid pro quo, this I'll do something for you and you'll do something for me. And I'm not that's useful, and you know it could be productive, and it could be great for work, but it's not a real relationship. And so I I really like, um, and for your listeners, if you ever get a chance to check out the Heart Math Institute, they've done some really interesting stuff with uh, how the heart creates an electromagnetic field of energy, and how real relationships actually vibe. So you could feel, you can be conscious when you're actually vibing with someone. And so that's so different than relationships where I'll do something for you if you do something for me. <laughs> and so I think we can bring this into the workplace and start to recognize when we're, when we're having a real relationship with someone. And, um, and, and there's so much, uh, you know, time, all, all, all the like external factors diminish. And, and and you're not worried about, you know, what can I get out of this conversation? Like you're, you're present for the conversation itself. And, and that's why I love, uh, you know, being on podcasts and, you know, getting to vibe with people that I've never met and we've met, but, so, you know, some people I've never met and, and all of a sudden you feel it. Like you, the energy is something you can become conscious of. And then you're like, wow, this is a real relationship. And um <clears throat> And uh, it's it's surprising that sometimes sometimes you relationships just vibe, but sometimes you can bring consciousness into that relationship, and you can start getting it to vibe. And the other, and in, in other words, maybe a relationship starts off with someone wants something from you, and you want, some, but then the more conscious you are, sometimes you can start feeling it vibe, and that changes the other person, and they start feeling it. And you can take relationships from like the abstract to the real and, and you both get something really important out of it. So true. Absolutely. And, and I think that's not, I think you could do it almost with anyone if you, you know, have sort of practiced that skill of, of knowing how to do that. And, and that's what healing is to my mind is just when you're, when you're witnessing someone at that level, when you can reach that level of attunement with another, that's what, that's what heals. Yeah, that's so perfectly perfect. I mean, that is what, and you can read a thousand books, you can do all that stuff, but consciously being present with another person, that's what healing, that's what heals trauma. That's what, that's what heals when someone's lonely. When someone's lonely, they don't want to have a conversation about how we're going to mutually benefit each other's work portfolio. <laughs> I mean, what you get to the conscious thing and all of a sudden people, you could tell uh, you bring the consciousness there and and then sometimes the other person brings the consciousness and and they take you on a trip and in the end um uh you're you're simply recognizing that we're sharing something so intimate because it's it's we're we're just recognizing well, who we truly are the conscious energy yeah so we can we can put another in contact with that soul self in that way by, by just being fully present for them and attuning to them. Because I think that's what most trauma stems from is just that lack of attunement, which doesn't mean that we all had crappy parents. We had parents doing the best they could under the, the, 
parameters that they were parented and, and that they are operating within the norms of our culture and our society. But lack of attunement, I think, is what causes so many of those fabricated abstractions about ourselves and our lack of worthiness and scarcity and competition. And all of that is just fabrication, just lies that we were installed programs with, right, with, which becomes the abstract world that we live in. And popping those bubbles, letting letting people see that that is just a, a fiction, an abstraction that we were taught. Because I love how you talk about how the brain is just a, a program running on automatic, right? We, we tend to identify with our thoughts and think our thoughts are who we are, but our thoughts are the, the least indicator of who we are. Talk about that. Yeah, it's just an input-output machine. And so if you put a lot of input into it about drama and news and, and you know, that, then the mind's going to focus on that the whole day. And you might feel yourself like, well, I need to change this. I need to somehow control the mind. But that's the beauty of some of the teachers like Nisargadatta. And um, they, 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 they will say, you know, look, you're not your mind. So what are you, what are you worried about it? And I think it's a beautiful message because so often we're trying to control the mind. And the mind goes off and it has negative thoughts or the mind is worried. And then we say, I need to not worry. And I, somehow I need to get control of this. But if you think of the mind as a computer program, I mean, like right now, my computer is doing what it does. I don't, I can't, I, I mean, it's, it's going to follow a program. It's, it's, um, it's very inflexible. That's what computer programs are. And, and the trick is that recognition, like, well, it's not who I am. So, let it do what it does. But there's also the recognition that, look, programs, what you put in is what you get out. And so, you know, depending on what you're putting into your mind program for the day, um, you know, uh, what, what are you feeding it is, 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 is a really important thing that you have some control over. And yeah. so, um, you know, you get up in the morning and uh, you fill it with beauty and nature and, 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 you know, or news and <laughs> drama. And, and, and so, um, you know, we don't have control of the program itself, but we do have control over the input. And so uh, at least some, I mean, we, we can at least do some, some of that work. And so I've always found that um, uh, starting the day seems to be such a, and I know lots of people, they journaled in the morning, but it really feels like that first thing, like what, what's that first thing you're attending to? And, um, you know, that, that choice of what we attend to seems to be, uh, it could be su such a huge, it can have such an impact on the rest of the day. Sometimes we're not even aware of it. And, you know, it's a subtle little thing. It could take you down another path. And sometimes it's like, you know, did you listen to the birds this morning or, um, focus on some old memory of something. And, uh, and so those initial uh, pieces of input uh, are important. You know, you talk about this and we talk about it in Joy School as well, how our attention is the currency, which would buy our experiences in, in life. Our attention is a choice. We don't really think it's a choice. And you talk about that too, how our thoughts are not so much within our control. But is it a practice that we can get our thoughts within our control? Because wherever we're paying our attention, that's the experience that we're we're buying. Yeah, attention. I even have like a short little, I called it attentional boot camp. And it's it's one of these things where there's really two attentional systems. And um, and they really do map onto the left and right sides of the brain, where the left brain attentional system is narrow, it's it's focused on language and and the right brain attentional system is more vast it's more simultaneous so it's it fits really nice in with nature and music and um but it, it's it, it's also a, a little deeper because that left brain attentional system is that computer program so it really doesn't have it it doesn't have any control over what it's paying attention to uh there's no you know i keep getting this question in my life from um on podcast and I've written a couple articles about, about the big free will question. And it just seems like some, then people always ask me, well, do you think people have free will or not? And I say, well, it depends. <laughs> if you're, if you're stuck in the computer program, there's not a whole lot of free will. You're sort of at the mercy of the program. But if you become the awareness of the program, there's an amazing sense of freedom with that. And, you know, it goes back to when the, 
neuroscientists of the West started talking with the monks who, who were practicing meditation. And the neuroscientists were convinced that our attention is inflexible, there's no freedom with it, and, and it's super short-lived. We can only pay attention to something for a really short time. And these monks were like, oh, no, I can stay focused attention for eight hours continuously without effort. <laughs> they were so shocked because that's not the way, well, that's not how we typically think. And it's very difficult for us to pay attention for eight seconds, let alone eight hours. But what they found through meditation is they're connecting with this other attentional system where there's total freedom and, and they're choosing what they attend to. And because of that, they can attend to whatever they want for as long as they want. And that's such a new message for so many of us. And, uh, and But it all starts in a real simple way. And so, you know, this attentional boot camp was, um, you know, start five five minutes of meditation. And even five minutes is too long. You start with 30 seconds and just consciously focus on your breath for 30 seconds. And some people even find that difficult. And so just, okay, go 10 seconds. <laughs> but just when you, you know, extend it out a little bit longer the next day. And that's what these monks did. And that's how they 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 shifted from this automatic type of attention to an attentional world where they're choosing what they pay attention to. And um <clears throat> and so I started slow and as um <clears throat> and and just work a little bit every day. Uh, I've, I've always told people to start off slow, super, so slow that you have no excuses because oh. you certainly have five seconds today. <laughs> There's no one who doesn't have five seconds. And just for five seconds, be conscious of your breath. Then tomorrow, just maybe 10 seconds. And you and it'd be surprising how with practice, you have more and more control. You have more volition, more free will with what you're attending to. I love that. That's home play, y'all. So it's a practiced connection to consciousness as opposed to mind. I, I feel like people confuse, and even some spiritual teachers, I think, will use the term mind the way that, that we're describing consciousness. So I, I think that's something that, that you know, when we say we're paying attention to something, we think we're doing that with our mind. But I love how you explained that there are two different attentional systems, and you can feel the difference. It's a felt difference, right, as opposed to there's, there's no way to really use your mind to know whether you're paying attention to your mind activity or paying attention to consciousness. It's a felt experience. Yeah. And it, it, you put it so perfectly that really what we're doing here is just, so that left brain intentional system is really just, it's the thinking mind, which is just all thoughts or programs. And when we pull out of that, and what we're really doing with that right brain awareness, it's it's really consciousness. So what we're really doing with all these practices, and this is, of course, it's the why of meditation. Like, why does it work? So many people, they do it, and, and they're just like, wow, it works. I don't care why it works. And uh, the why is because it's taking you out of thinking mind, which is a very specific system. It was It was there to solve problems. It was never there to make you happy. It wasn't, it isn't even who you are. It's, you know, we all have this, we we all share the same thoughts. We think, well, I'm thinking my thoughts, but our thoughts are, they're, it's a program. So they're so similar. We're all thinking the same thoughts. But um, when you shift from that thinking, which is just not, it doesn't have the energy of consciousness to consciousness through practice, which we were all born that way. It just through schooling and it, like, we have to get back. We have to do a little work to get back to where we originally were. And um, then you've got the conscious energy and it's consciousness that has ultimate free will. And so when you're having those conscious experiences and you're identified with consciousness, it's unlimited free will. And, um, and then when you're, identified with the thinking computer like mind, there's no free will at all. You're totally bound by the programming. And so the free will question is fun to talk about, but it's not, people usually think, well, yes, we have it. Yes, we, or no, we don't, but it's a little bit more complex. And I love, uh, the old, uh, there's an American, famous American psychologist, William James. And I love the way he put it. He said, my first act of free will will be to believe in free will. And so yeah, you have to, uh, 
you know, consider it as a possibility. And that's what, you know, consciousness, when people have these conscious experiences, which we all do, I mean, even the most bureaucratic business type person who lives in the in an abstract world, they still have these experiences. But thinking has so many tricks. And, 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 and the moment the thinking mind comes back on, it devalues the joy of, of those experiences. And so the, the thinking mind, it's, it's, a, it's such a clever, it's such a, an amazing program. And so you really have to um, uh, be in, you know, uh, blown away by, by this program that has taken so many of us and taken us from the joy of our natural being and put us into this strange world where we're capable of things that um, are so strange, like, like depression, anxiety. We, we don't, in, the, in a conscious world, there is no depression and anxiety. And these things don't exist outside of abstractions. In the abstract world, then we, we do very strange things. We say, I am depressed. And it's, you know, just that one sentence alone is so filled with thought constructed abstractions <laughs> that uh, just by pondering on the how abstract it is, that can sometimes bring a person out and like, you know, like in the whole no self books, it's like, well, there's no you to be depressed in the first place. And depression is just another thought. And so how can, you know, one thought have another thought? And so they're just maybe thoughts that have been labeled as depressed or thoughts that get labeled as anxious, but that's, that's at the very best, that's all there is. And if you're experiencing, again, tasting your coffee or the sun on your face, you realize that none of that means anything. Like, the, the, like you, you, it's impossible to bring depression into the light and bliss of consciousness. Mm. And just, there's something about the, the uh, light of consciousness that, dissolves all the illusions of the thinking mind no thought can stand up to it and so when you when you're in that light of consciousness there's no there cannot be depressed there cannot be anxiety those states can't exist and we know this because the people who do meditation they get it yeah and and that's such a clear distinction that that's how we get to the joy that we are naturally. We are naturally joy. We don't have to do anything to create it or chase it or manifest it. We just have to get rid of all the, the abstractions. And, and it brings me to a, a chilling line in your new book where you say that every generation gets further removed from what's real, gets, gets further entrenched in this world of abstraction. I feel like there is sort of a, a, a burgeoning, spiritual renaissance that's happening but maybe that's just in my own little bubble maybe that's not the the global phenomenon that i'm experiencing it as do you think that there's a, a chance that the the real world will be lost in future generations to this this made-up world of abstraction that most of us spend most of our time subscribing to well you know when i say this that people might get the image that there's this battle of good and evil and thoughts are, you know, and but it's really consciousness, just forgetting, it's going on its own little adventure, forgetting who it is, falling asleep in a dream, because it's exciting to get lost and forget who you really are. And so I put that as the foundation of it. But there's, I really, the way I put it, it was so easy to put all this together. When I started looking at history, particularly the last 200 years, all these abstractions, I mean, that never existed for our species. In the last, particularly the last 100 years, they all just they were all invented, very fame. Uh, I mean, all kinds of forms of government, nationalism, and um, fascism. I mean, all these things, all these isms that are ultimately abstracted, they were all invented by us humans in the last hundred years or so. And I mean, just to think about fame. And like, in fact, it's funny because I was looking at a, some research how um, it was like 18 to 38 year old they all want to, people want to be famous. I mean, we really do. We just like, and you say, well, what is fame? Well, it's just so people will think, have a thought of me in their head. <laughs> and more people have a thought of me in their head than I have of them. I mean, it's a very strange abstraction that never existed for us. 
until just recently. I, I forget the person's name. She was the like the very first famous person was only like a hundred years ago. <laughs> and, so, and so, and then all the stuff with nationalism, like this idea that yeah, people have been in groups and they've respected and valued their culture. But the idea of this, um, th this abstract government somehow being more valuable than the individuals that make it up, that's new. That's a very recent idea. And, you know, unfortunately, it leads to a lot of um, the worst in humans. And so the abstraction is taking us down a path, a very dangerous path. Um, and, you know, we'll, we'll wake up if we want to wake up to it. But um, uh, it's uh, there, there's very little doubt, I particularly, I mean, I'm almost finished writing this and something in the last hundred years has cranked up the abstraction so much that we there's that we're almost so in the past uh our ancestors lived in the real world they were conscious they were happy and they lived in these abstractions maybe an hour or two a day and then it just sort of gotten to the point now these abstractions we're literally getting we're becoming disconnected from the real world. And I and I'll just use Daniel Dennett. He's a famous philosopher. I'll just use him as an example because he's an academic. He thinks a lot. He lives in an abstract world. And he came out with an amazing book, Consciousness Explained. And in it he says, look, consciousness is an illusion. And I'm just like, wow, that's an amazing, you know, could consciousness have have be playing a more adventurous game with itself to yeah. come out and say, by the way, I'm an illusion. <laughs> and so, uh, but what Dennett did was, you know, he confused, he, he, he got so into the abstract world that he became so disconnected from consciousness itself that he claimed that the real world of consciousness was itself an illusion. And so we, we find the, the only power, thing that's real, <laughs> the only thing that's real, <laughs> the only thing that's real. And of, and of course, you know, it's a thinking abstract world. That's an illusion. So the illusion is becoming so powerful that it's actually starting to take over reality itself. And um, so put in a historical perspective like that, it's been a, it's a, it's been a fascinating adventure watching to see us, play this game of slowly disconnecting ourselves um, with, with, with reality and, um, and the consequences. Again, in the abstract world, we, we live with depression. I mean, depression and anxiety are in the abstract world. And so the more we cut ourselves off from the joy of reality, the more we're going to find ourselves in these um, fairly unpleasant states. And, but also, the, the more dangerous it, it gets um, as a species. The more we identify with this little personhood that we've cobbled together from all of our different experiences and beliefs that we've accrued, the more we, we don't recognize the, the truer aspect of our nature. Yeah, yeah. Like I am consciousness. Everything else is a thought. The, the idea of I'm Chris, that's a thought. Right, right. <laughs> you know, the idea it's, that yeah. I'm personified consciousness a few times in that recent conversation. And I, that catches my attention because I also tend to personify consciousness in your mind, consciousness, God is consciousness, God. And is the problem with calling it God, the, the way that so much of organized religion has given people a distorted sense of that word, God, is that talk about consciousness being God? Well, one of my favorite interviews was with uh, Carl Jung, the psychiatrist, um, and someone had asked him, they said, do you believe in God? And he shocked people. He said, I don't believe in God. He goes, I know God exists. And in that sense, I think what he was referring to is those conscious experiences. And we know that they, it's not just who I am, but it's who we all are. And it's not just who I am. It's consciousness manifesting as everything we call the physical world. And so it's a really profound thing that consciousness comes first and consciousness isn't personal. Like I, like we have strange phrases. We say, I am conscious and we've got it backwards. There's no, there's no I that suddenly gets this level of complexity and then becomes conscious. There's consciousness first and that creates all these illusions of separation and, and it's having a fun game playing Chris. You know, Chris is a kind of a wild 
adventure. <laughs> but, um, you know, uh, you, when you eliminate all the illusion, then there's reality. And so I think you could call consciousness God. I think you could call, uh, but there's nothing personal about it. So I wouldn't say I am. There's no I that would be. So it's a very impersonal thing. Um but then it's the most intimate thing there is. <laughs> and so, I mean, that those joyful experiences, and plus, like we were talking about relationships before, when, when people really vibe, they're recognizing that, that, that who, who they are is the same thing. Like we, we're both of the same consciousness. We're, there's no, the, the idea that there's you over there and there's me over here, that's the illusion. And when consciousness recognizes itself, that's, that's love and that's relationships and that's intimacy and uh, everything else is just a story that, um, and that's what happens. You know, people have these experiences and then they try to talk about them and sometimes they become different stories. And, um, and then sometimes people, uh, we have a very good trick of turning consciousness into an abstraction. And, um, and so they become, you know, uh, books on consciousness and so um which i write too <laughs> i do i do the same thing but it's always recognized that everything is an abstract pointer so uh people reorient themselves and revalue uh these experiences because the thinking mind will always devalue it because it's it's always trying to protect itself you know an illusion is uh, in fact, so it, I was writing a really difficult part of the book, and it was about the 20th century, which I think the abstract world, the illusory world, hit a pinnacle in the 20th century. Because if you notice, there's more world wars. There was 100 million people who died from conflict between different countries. But that's not the remarkable number. I mean, it is remarkable, but the really disturbing number is quarter of a billion people died at the hands of their own government. Wow. And that number is shocking. I mean, it's just something that we should be like, look, why would why would anyone do this? But you can see that uh, what we've done is at the abstract world has become so powerful that, and I think Stalin put it really well in this quote, he said, one person dying is a tragedy, a million people is a statistic. And so because we live in this, this statistical abstract world, it's made doing horrific things to other people much easier. And so when we bring it back to consciousness, then we recognize what we're actually doing. And then when you live in the abstract world, it just makes, it takes the reality away from it. And so it's the abstract world that's going around. We've got so many wars going on right now. And if you notice in war, people, it's not, you know, Joe killing Sam. It's not, you know, we take the individuality out, we take the consciousness out of it. And it suddenly becomes one categorical, you know, entity versus another categorical entity. And that makes it all easy for us to do. And it shouldn't be easy at all. If we, if you come back to conscious awareness, war should be so absolutely impossible we would never be able to do it and the rates of post-traumatic stress and soldiers sort of speak to that as well that while it was so normalized and so they're made to be heroes in that moment something deep inside them it's gonna break later <laughs> because it's it is so unnatural yeah and that's you can only it's you know the abstract world attempts to make it easy but we know the reality of it and we, and we know, uh, when, particularly when we have conscious moments, that um, the, the real dangers of, of living in these abstract worlds. And so, um, yeah, it's, uh, it's, we're, we're definitely playing the game at level 10. And so uh, we'll see if, we, if there's enough consciousness. Because like we were talking about before, like sometimes if I'm talking with someone, that person can bring consciousness to the relationship. And then sometimes maybe it comes from my end or there. And, and, you know, can, can there be that um, awakening that uh, we recognize that, that, you know, 
none of these abstractions exist. They're just they're thoughts in the mind. And so to act on them is is just uh it's this madness to to, to act on a thought that um you know category X or category Y, you know, whatever category is that for some reason like um you know this or that would be justified. So um, that knee-jerk reactivity is how so many humans are just living their lives because they haven't found that that way out of the abstract. And I know everything we do in Joy School is about living more from that soul essence, from consciousness. And so often it's the finger pointing to the moon. And I know that that you have the same challenge with the the people that you work with. And what what are ways you've found to help people recognize the consciousness within themselves? I mean, just that moment. I mean, you talked about the moment of the sunshine on your face and the the coffee. Yeah. And so sensory, sensory awareness. Thoughts have become, the, the abstract thing in the world has become so comfortable for us that it, it is so normal for us that one of the things I try to do is to help people recognize how weird it is. Yeah, that's <laughs> true. <laughs> that it's, it's a weird thing to, to start thinking about something. That, and I had a whole section, like thoughts are not at all what you think they are. And so um, I, something as simple as, as, as even thinking, you know, what other people think. And and we, we, we're just so sure. We're just, we're, I'm, you know, there's a, such a funny, I posted this. I thought it was such a funny post because it hits so well with the stuff I've been working on that, um, that the band, the 80s band, U2, that it was something like, well, everyone thought they were popular because they thought everyone else liked them. But actually, in reality, nobody liked them. <laughs> and I mean, I don't know if you, it's nothing personal with the band, that they were fine. It was just a funny <laughs> post because it showed how, you know, we act on what, like, what I think you're thinking. Right. And Tribal acceptance truth, is such a strong drive. And the truth is, I, you know, so often we don't know what other people are thinking. And so... um uh, the whole thought process is so seductive and on so many levels, but it's so, it's, it's one of the worst GPSs we could ever use to guide ourselves around in reality. It's almost never right. Uh, it, it's, it's, it, it usually is paranoid. So it usually has the worst outcome in mind and it's just trying to protect us and, and it has a survival in mind. Um, but it's just so outdated we just, we don't need it anymore. And we can't get rid of it, but we can recognize all of its weaknesses and its flaws. And so <clears throat> that's the approach. I, I, I take this approach where I, I really try to deconstruct thinking for the reader so much to the point that, um, in fact, I, I was just, you know, when you write a book, you really play around with what the last chapter is going to be. And I wanted to... Uh, possibly write something like are thoughts even worth it <laughs> are, are these thoughts that we have are and so what do thoughts do well they lead us to anxiety they, they lead us to depression have what have they done for us have they really helped us out as a species i mean most medical advances were accidents that we stumbled on um you know they're big advances and even einstein you say well einstein was this brilliant thinker not really einstein said very explicitly that you 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 do consider and, and and process information, but then you swim in silence. And intuition. And then, he claimed everything that everything they called his brilliance was just hits of intuition. Yeah, it was it was a bigger intelligence communicating with him. So he wasn't really thinking, and I, th I think he had a a talent for being silent and letting the universe speak to him, and that's how he got these big truths. And so, um. Yeah, thinking it's overrated. It it hasn't gotten us to the place that we think it has. And so we say, well, I mean, human beings, we're defined as a rational species, but it's all these other miracles of like things like intuition, conscious observation. I mean, how do we really get out of a mess? We 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 look to see what works. And we notice, and we're like, wow, this works. And we notice you become conscious and you're like, well, that thought was useless. Hey, that thought was pretty useful, and so you 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 really travel up the mountain using a path, a very effective path. So, so th thinking goes like this up the mountain, but consciousness is a nice straight path up the mountain, and so 
uh, it corrects its errors. We, that, that's how we recognize once we've, when we've made errors because we become consciously aware of them. And we're like, this didn't work, this didn't work. And so we've, we, we've really overrated thinking. And so that's why I think the title of the book, I think I'm actually going to call it The Thinking Illusion. I love that. Yeah. I also loved waking up from the dream of thinking. I think that's a yeah. good as well. Yeah. Yeah. One, one of them will make it in there, I think. I think. <laughs> but um, it is a beautiful place to not wrap up because this is just a pause because we are definitely going to pick up this conversation again. But tell everybody where they can find all of your brilliance for now. Well, I have a lot of fun on my YouTube channel and it's gone so, and it's just Chris Niebauer, PhD, I think, which is funny that I have those letters attached because <laughs> I consider them so insignificant. <laughs> I mean, it would really be... Um, no, no different from your name, right? Chris Niebauer, yeah. so it's not just an abstraction. Yeah, yeah. it is. And and so uh, really the YouTube channel is a good place to check out things that are happening, uh, uh, like day, day, probably post twice a week. And um, and I also have the Chris Nebar PhD, the website, which I'm actually, I, and I'm kind of behind on this, but I really wanted to um, start something where people who like to read will have some place they can go. And I was going to have something centered around neuropsychology rather than philosophy and consciousness. And people could just ask simple neuropsych questions and, and then I could go into something. So that's... Um, part of the abstraction for 2024. That's part of the plan. And then um, um, just the books, you know, the the no self, no problem stuff on Amazon is the easiest place to find them. And uh, so, um, yeah. And then, you know, various podcasts that I've been on and that's always a good place to keep up. And hopefully uh, the, the new book still in the planning stages, but it should come out, you know, within the next year or so. Beautiful. So good to spend this time with you, my brother. I love you. <laughs> Thanks. So I love vibing with you. We, we, it's like, it doesn't matter what mood I'm in. You, you have that conscious energy that we just instantly vibe. So you can always take my consciousness up. So <laughs> it's so true. It's so true. I love that. All right. Until next time. Deepest gratitude and love to you, my beautiful listener tribe, with representation in 30 countries all across the globe. I'm so honored to spend this time with you. If you're wondering about my online events, my books, joining my Joy School community, all of that is waiting for you at lisamccourt.com. I look forward to connecting with you there. Much love. Are you ready to ignite your best life and illuminate the world? I'm Stephanie James. I'm a motivational speaker, transformation coach, and psychotherapist. And what lights me up is helping people just like you create the greatest versions of themselves. On my podcast, Igniting the Spark, I will help you ignite your joy and reach new heights in your personal and professional life. Join me for some incredible conversations with authors, spiritual teachers, and other influential thought leaders to help guide you on your way. If you are ready to stop playing small, join me for Igniting the Spark on the mindbodyspirit.fm network or wherever you get your podcasts and ignite your best life.